Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a solo episode for you. Today's episode is going to be me breaking down my most recent training and uh, what will ultimately be what leads me to the Brazos Bend 100 mile this weekend on December 3rd. So uh, for a bit of perspective, I jump into kind of how I structure training and why this one was maybe a little different than other training recaps because I was coming off an injury this summer that had been a reoccurring issue uh, from the prior year. So I was uh, a little bit in unfamiliar territory for myself, although I did have some good help along the way to kind of guide my decision-making. And uh, thankfully, uh, it led to me being able to do a hundred miler before the end of the year. So we'll see how that goes in a few days and then build out from there. Uh, I talk a little bit about this in the episode, but I'm excited to get back to a little more of a traditional race schedule for me in the next year. Uh, now that uh, I'm getting a little more confidence in uh, the my ankle issue that has been essentially a non-issue at this point and hopefully will remain that way. Uh, but we talk about that quite a bit. I dive into kind of like the details of what I did and why I did it and where I think I'm at, uh, going into this Saturday's hundred miles, some goals that I have on the day and, uh, yeah, just all of that. So also coming up, I'll have a couple more episodes coming out before the end of the year. Two of those are going to be guest interviews. They are with, uh, a two-part guest, doctors Carl and Spencer Nadolski. I had mentioned on a few previous podcasts that they were going to be coming on. Originally, we planned to have them come on and chat about continuous glucose monitors. I had done a couple episodes on that kind of new technology, what it means, what it tells us above and beyond what we would maybe have gotten from more uh kind of one-time glucose measurements and things like that, and what impact having that data available to us on a 24 hour, uh, seven day a week framework does. Although with all tools, there are oftentimes things you want to be mindful of or careful of, and even some things that are potentially dangerous. So, uh, Spencer and Carl both were, they're not anti-continuous glucose monitors by any stretch of the imagination, but they are also kind of looking at it from both angles. So I wanted to have them come on and share a little bit about what that kind of technology means what maybe would be good additives to it in terms of maybe rounding out that information so we get the full picture. We also talked a bit about just the the kind of the low-carb ketogenic diet, how it's evolved more or less over the years, some of the kind of pitfalls with it as well as the benefits of it. Both of them actually use it with some of their patients they definitely use it as a tool versus something they're prescribing outright by anything. So it was interesting to kind of get their take and kind of their landscape because they're definitely no stranger to online debate around the topic. Uh, so it was uh, fun to kind of hear, hear, hear them chat about it. Honestly, though, I need to have them both back on either together or separately with uh, Carl and Spencer have a wealth of knowledge. And there were some topics we didn't get to just because I had a hard out that we ran up against near the end there. But uh, yeah, both of them would be fun guests to have back on to talk about stuff. So if you do listen to that episode down the road, enjoy it. 
want a deeper dive in one of the areas we talked about or something else that those two or one of those two you feel would be uh, good at breaking down for us, let me know and I will try to get them scheduled again in the new year. Uh, also coming up is Matt Gallant. I had Matt come back on the show to chat about sleep optimization. Matt recently has dove into kind of all the craze around sleep hygiene, sleep practices, and shared his experience. He's tried everything from just like the free natural stuff you can kind of just do tonight if you wanted to versus ones that, uh, I mean, scales all the way up to like buying some pretty expensive stuff. And um, yeah, so he shares like a little bit about a whole range of that stuff. And uh, we did that stuff. Both those episodes are up on the show Patreon page at the moment. So if you want to get ad-free early release episodes and support the podcast, you can do that by joining the show Patreon page. There you'll find the ad-free audio versions that I put up as soon as I can after recording. So you get them a little bit earlier. And then, like I said, you get them ad-free as well. You can access that by going to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. There'll be a link there for the Patreon page as well as other support options if interested uh, on that page also is kind of the landing page for all the details, links, and all things Human Performance Dollars podcast, really. So if you want to have more information about a specific episode, search through the catalog a bit and see kind of what episodes maybe you missed. That's a good spot to head over to to check that sort of thing out if interested. Uh, outside of that, if you want to support the show non-monetarily, one thing that goes a very long way is to like share and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening or viewing platform. The Human Forest Outliers podcast is available on all podcast platforms and YouTube. So if you use one specifically, subscribe so you get the recent episodes downloaded automatically to your phone. Uh, if you want to leave a review or a comment, that helps me grow the podcast and it goes a long way if you don't mind helping me out. Um other than that, I think we're pretty much ready to roll. A couple just brief announcements. If uh, minus this weekend, where I'll be out at Brazos, if um, you want to meet up and do some running with me, I host a Sunday morning group run here in Austin, Texas. So if you're local to the area or visiting, feel free to stop by. We do two options at the moment, an 8 a.m. and a 9 a.m. We have options that are four miles, six miles, and then a two and a half mile run walk. So people do a lot of different things for them. They will come to one that's more convenient for their schedule and just do one of those distances with a group of uh, even paced people with them. We have a variety of different paces or some people want to go a little bit longer. We'll come to the eight and nine o'clock and mix and match to get the distance that they prefer. I've been going to both of them. So if you want to come and hang out, usually the 8 a.m. version is a little bit lighter in terms of numbers. This 9 a.m. is a bigger group. We've had up to 40 people, I think, at the 9 a.m. one in the past. So if you're looking for more people, 9 a.m. is maybe a good target for now. If you're looking for fewer people, uh, maybe more in-depth conversation, not a bad idea to swing by that 8 o'clock one. We meet at Metz Park in Austin and for specific details and to make sure that you're up to date before showing up is the best thing you can do for that is go to Instagram and find outliers ATX on there. They do frequent updates and share everything that we're going on there. And finally, I am currently onboarding a few more clients for coaching right now before we head into the new year. So if you're interested in getting some one-on-one -on -one coaching support, which can scale all the way up to frequent communication with me via text, email, and consultation calls, 
as well as me programming you specifically to the event that you are targeting, you can do that. Or if you just want to follow my coaching philosophy, I've got some pre-made plans as well. I try to set up my coaching so that whatever level of support you want, there is an option there for you. So if you want to check some of that stuff out, just head over to my website at zachbitter.com. All right, final note. Last way to support the podcast is through the show sponsors. If they happen to have a product that you like or want to try out, you can let them know that you heard about them from the Human Performance Outliers podcast. The best way to check out the details and discounts that they offer is to head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. That's where you'll find links and details for all of them. This episode sponsors are LMNT electrolytes and bond charge sleep masks. I have been getting a fair bit of requests to do a training update, and it has been something that I have not done a thorough podcast on in quite some time. Part of that is because this most recent buildup was one that I was almost, at least at first, taking essentially a week at a time or even a run at a time as I was coming off an ankle issue that I'd been dealing with early early this year, which was actually a reoccurring issue. So um, I wanted to be very careful and it was somewhat uncharted territory for me in the sense that I've had injuries before, fortunately, very few since I started ultra running, but none of which kind of flared back up after the original instance. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't putting the cart before the horse, so to speak, and getting too far ahead of myself and, and, and actually even picking a race for that matter. I wasn't convinced at the time when I started this most recent training block that I would be doing another ultra marathon this year. But uh, as things progressed and my fitness started to improve, I decided to jump into the Brazos Ben 100 miler, which is uh, coming up this weekend, actually on Saturday, December 3rd. So I want to give just a bit of a recap of kind of how I found myself in the situation in the first place, and then how I kind of structured a training leading into what eventually became the Brazos Bend 100 mile. Uh, maybe a few tips in there as well, too, because some people may ask, like, how do you start a training block without knowing that you are going to do a race? Like, what are your goals with that? Or how do you actually do that without having kind of that end target? And although I definitely think knowing the race you're going to target, or at least the distance and intensity is very valuable in kind of structuring the order of operations of training, I had, I think, a unique enough situation that it sort of made sense and enough things highlighted themselves along the way that allowed me to kind of do it the way I did. But generally speaking, in a perfect scenario, I like to know probably a good six months ahead of time if I'm going to be peaking for a race. Because like I said, if I decide it's going to be something like 100 miles, that's going to dictate a lot of times how I kind of structure the training versus if I were to do something shorter, like a 5k or 10k or something like that. So Let's jump into some of the things. I want to do a, a quick recap, just kind of how things actually like started with this whole thing. Uh, for those who are either new to the show or haven't put together the bits and pieces that I've shared in the past, but essentially last year at the end of July, I aggravated my right ankle, and it was it was kind of weird. It behaved like a like a sprained ankle, but it didn't have like that acute thing of like I rolled it or stepped on it wrong, and I knew right away. It sort of just flared up on me at the end of a long run and uh, turned out to be a couple partial tears on both sides of my right ankle, as well as some Achilles tendonitis. And that was uh, concerning enough that I knew I was going to need some downtime and some, some uh, strength work and rehab and all that sort of stuff. So uh, 
I went along that journey and it went very well, presumably. I got back to training after that and actually built up and raced the Tunnel Hill 100 mile last year in early November. And I didn't really have any issues with it, that whole buildup, which is what was the most uh, intriguing thing about this injury to me was I felt like it was behind me almost 100%. In fact, after I finished that race, I was super confident that I just run 100 miles with no issues on it because that was going to be kind of like the real determiner. I made it through that training block without any issues, but um, I wanted to make sure we'll connect, sustain 100 miles. And you know, I've talked about this before in the past, but when you're training for a hundred mile race, you're just not getting anywhere near race distance and training. So a lot of times there's some question marks that, that you just can't really address until day of, and you're leaning on past experience and, and trying to set up your training in a way that you can best predict these things. But ultimately I think that's what makes some of these longer ultra marathons. So interesting is unlike Olympic distance events, you get nowhere near those distances in training, unless you're jumping in a race mid mid training block. So uh, after that, I began training again, I believe it was about two weeks after Tunnel Hill. And uh, I actually had a, a couple other issues flare up on me throughout the end of the year that cost me a little bit of training time. Nothing significant, but when my wife and I moved to Austin in January and I started training out here in Austin, I started noticing that I was having some like kind of random flare ups with that right ankle again. And that created a bit of an issue where uh, eventually I also started having issues with the uh, opposite side left knee. Um, it was hard to tease out what, what drove that. I suspect it may have actually been when we were moving, just uh, hauling stuff around that it may be like overexerted a little bit and then did a speed workout the next day. And that may have been just kind of like the straw that aggravated that. But uh, I suspect that the uncertainty with that right ankle maybe have led to there's a little bit of extra load getting placed on that left knee. So um, total speculation on my part, but you know, it was, it was a, it was a hiccup in the training. So uh, throughout the kind of first half of the year, I ended up picking the 24 hour event at six days in the dome to do because it was something where when I was running slow and easy pace type stuff, I never really noticed the, my ankle as much as when I would start doing like things that were a little faster, it felt like it would start to aggravate it. Uh, so rather than trying to go through a full range of speed work, uh, I just basically did a lot of kind of low end aerobic work and thought, well, maybe I can do a 24 hour event and, and see how that goes. In hindsight, that was a bad idea. I should have just shut it down, got everything caught up, went on like a thorough strength program and addressed all of it and just accepted that that first half of the year was going to be more or less a wash compared to a lot of previous years. But, um, you know, hindsight's 2020 and, uh, we all make those mistakes, I think at times, and I'm certainly not, uh, void of them myself. So, uh, the race itself is where I think that really highlighted itself. Uh, some of you maybe followed along and, and know this story already, but I actually ended up stepping on a ridge that's on the side of the track on that event around 10 hours in. And I, uh, sort of turned that right ankle. And it progressively just got worse and worse over the next five hours to the point where once I got to about 15 hours, about, I think it was about hundred miles in, uh, I just pulled the plug on it. Cause I could tell it was just getting worse. And I was afraid for one that I was going to 
make a bad issue even worse by continuing to compound it for another nine hours. And also I kind of knew in the back of my mind at that point that even though that was an unfortunate step on that ridge, it probably shouldn't have been something bad enough that led to that. That should have been something where I like noticed it and was like, Oh, better not do that again. And then after like a lap kind of been fine. So that was kind of an acknowledgement that there was still some weakness and some issues in there that really needed to be addressed. So after that, uh, I took, uh, about a month off from running altogether, focused on like really doing a lot of mobility, some like cross-sectional massage work. Uh, I actually got some stem cells put into that right ankle at that point too. This time around, it was only the outside though. So when I originally aggravated, I had those partial tears on the both both sides of the ankle and then the, the tendonitis and the Achilles tendon. But this time it was really just that right side. Uh, as far as I could tell, the Achilles tendonitis wasn't there anymore. The left side had been a complete non-issue since I rehabbed the first time. So I guess it wasn't a complete failure. It was just, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't, I didn't quite get it all, all straightened out. And perhaps I just re re-aggravated that right side at some point without really being able to pinpoint the exact, the exact time. And, and that's what kind of resulted in that kind of seamless buildup to tunnel Hill, but then all those kind of like hiccups sort of from there on in towards uh, six days in the dome. But yeah, so a lot of mobility, a lot of strength, stem cells uh, was what I did for about four weeks with no running. And then I was at a point where I was like pretty confident that I could start doing some easy running. Now, I wanted to make sure that I was going to be able to actually trust the ankle this time around. So I wasn't going to do a similar approach where if it was bothering me doing speed work, I was going to just pivot to something where I presumably wouldn't need that as much or would be less of an important aspect to the training, because this is something I needed to solve at this point, because I'm coming up on a year of this kind of having been uh, something that didn't quite go away entirely. And I, I knew like I need to do it right this time around. So uh, I didn't want to jump right into speed work. But I did know that I needed to be able to do that, to be able to confirm that it was ready to take the next step and start picking races and things like that. And I also knew that just based on the kind of way I had been training the prior year, and then that last buildup, that speed work was something that was going to be kind of a focus point in my next buildup because it was something that I just needed to kind of readdress uh, from my own kind of specific strengths and weaknesses and development at that point in time. So I gave myself a couple of weeks of just like really low mileage, easy running before I did anything just to test out, uh, make sure that it was even smart to continue at this point, because I was committed to shutting it right back down if it was clear that that wasn't going to be the case. But thankfully, those two weeks went quite well. I didn't notice the ankle at all. I was very religious about doing like full mobility and stretching routines and stuff every morning before I would go out for a run and even some uh, some like kind of strength work and stuff too, to get everything kind of moving before I would start. And that would range from anywhere from like 30 to 45 minutes. So basically before I would do any run, I would go through that, that kind of routine. And that was uh, a combination of different like ankle mobility stuff, strength stuff. I did a lot of, uh, uh, bent knee calf raises, straight leg calf raises, tibialis raises, banded work where I would, 
kind of move my foot in a variety of different directions and angles. So I get that variety action with it, just so I could make sure I was getting that whole lower leg and ankle area very strong. Because if I get that much stronger, then it's just going to give the connective areas in their tendons and ligaments a lot less of a, of a job to kind of do to tolerate the running aspect of things. So that was a huge uh, goal of mine. If you're really interested in just the kind of the different strength works that I just described, I do have a uh, video that I put up on one of my YouTube channels, not the the Human Performance Outliers podcast YouTube channel, but my my running one, which is just if you go on to uh, YouTube and search at Zach Bitter Ultra, that page will come up, and I've got some videos down there. One of which is called uh, um, "Do You Have Weak Feet and Ankles." And I kind of outline some of the movements that I used to really kind of help strengthen mine. Some other stuff I did just in the gym too, that isn't on that is uh, I started making use of the seated calf raise machine. So I could just load up a little more weight on it, especially once I got to a point where I felt like the uh, kind of the body weight stuff with uh, calf raises and bent knee calf raises and tibialis raises and things like that were sort of getting to the point where I was uh, getting quite good at them and wanted to add a little bit more load to it. So just uh, some extra to kind of add into that. All right. So after that first couple of weeks of easy running, I decided to try to start a little bit of speed work. So um, typically speaking, for those who've kind of following, you'll you'll recognize if I'm going to be training for something longer, like a hundred mile, I still do speed work. I just put it kind of earlier in the plan and I go least specific first. So that usually means short intervals. For me, short intervals, I'm going to tie to like an intensity that I could do for like 12 to 15 minutes. Generally, they're going to be between 30 seconds and up to five, but more likely four minutes in duration at that intensity that I could do for 12 to 15 minutes in a race day type setting. So uh, often once I kind of get into the full swing of that, I'm targeting more like two to four minutes in that because it's a it's really a VO2 max workout. And that tends to be what the research would suggest is kind of the sweet spot is that two to four minute time frame. And for those, I'm doing a one-to-one work-to-rest ratio. So that just means however long I do the interval for, I'm going to take an equal part amount of rest. So if that happens to be on the shorter end, like 30 seconds, it'll be 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. Happens to be on the longer end, like four minutes, it'd be four minutes on, four minutes off. So I started those pretty gradually. I did a lot less volume in any one single session, and I spread it out a little bit more. I didn't do any block training really with it where I would do back-to-back days or even hard, easy, hard. A lot of times I gave myself two or even three days between those sessions. And one other thing that I I really like to do in general when I start short interval stuff, and I definitely felt like I need to do that here, is do those on an incline. Because when you're targeting a race that's going to be longer, and this is a little less useful if you're training for something like a 5K or something that's like short, flat, and fast where you actually really need to like develop the mechanics and the turnover at the pace at which uh, the cadence at which you're going to be racing at with ultra marathons, like a hundred mile stuff, you don't need that nearly as it's not nearly as important. So you're better off getting the stimulus without necessarily worrying too much about uh, the, the leg turnover side of it. So doing them on an incline, you get the benefits you're looking for, for the most part, but you reduce the impact. So it's kind of a good intro to speed work is what I like to call it sometimes because it makes it, it just reduces their injury risk. Uh, and you're always having a little bit of a heightened, uh, risk reward ratio when it comes to doing things that are higher impact, like speed work. So I wanted to be mindful of that. 
But in total, I did about 10 sessions that were at that intensity spread over about six weeks. And uh, they ranged from very structured, like I mentioned, to a little bit more kind of intuitive. So like a fartlek style training where you just you know run hard for like a period of time or to a specific uh, spot and then kind of recover and do it again with a little bit, oh, quite a bit of less structure action in that case. And I actually did some fun ones too, that were just kind of like, uh, that were just like kind of exciting to kind of add a little flavor to the training. And they just kind of happened to pop up on days where I felt good and felt like, okay, I think today's a good day to do, do some speed work based on what my body's telling me. And one of those was I did this 10 mile run where I would do about, uh, three quarters of a mile at about my, my aerobic threshold and then do a quarter mile hard or at that intensity for like that VO two max 12 to 15 minute race day setting type stuff. And I did 10 of those. That one was a lot of fun. It's not probably the most ideal way to structure that or the, the best quote unquote on paper way to do that. But sometimes when it comes to like short intervals and things like that, I find like the more motivated and excited you are to do something, uh, the better quality you're probably going to get out of it anyway, since it does happen to be one where you have to push pretty hard for versus always doing the exact same formulaic thing right as it's prescribed on paper. And then maybe getting a little lackadaisical about uh, how how much quality you're putting into it because it gets a little bit more boring or more dry. So that was more of one that I dropped in kind of randomly in the middle just for for some excitement that was 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 a fun kind of bit of a I call it a flavor enhancer maybe when it comes to doing speed work. Uh and that all went really well. Uh my ankle responded well to it. It didn't seem to give me any problems. I didn't even notice that there was like additional soreness or things like that uh outside of the norm that you might get from something like that. That type of a workout on on the subsequent days. So that was a good sign for me. Then uh typically what I'll do is I'll transition to more threshold work and threshold work. I'm calling essentially a sense, an intensity that you could do for about 60 minutes on a race day setting It's a bit of a moving target. And you know, the term threshold, we're talking about lactate threshold tends to be one where there's multiple definitions or multiple words that we use to kind of describe that effort. And ultimately it ends up being like this big developmental moving target where you do see situations where you get like elite Olympic marathoners running like low two hours, getting close to their lactate threshold for nearly two hours. And then you have like the average runner who that's like, you know, maybe 45 to 60 minutes. So it's kind of hard to have a moving target like that and actually like have your training really be based on that intensity. If you don't go in and get like a metabolic heart test done and really see where you're at and then kind of start from there. And most people are probably not going to do that. Although if you do have access to that, that's a great asset. You can kind of figure out where your fitnesses, strengths, and weaknesses at are, are at where your 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 uh, crossover points are from like your aerobic threshold, your lactate threshold, where your VO2 max, all these heart rate. You can like combine a bunch of different data points to really help organize your training if you do have access to that. But if not, then I, I do like to do some field tests to kind of gauge that where you kind of figure out about where you would be for a 60 minute all out session and then pin a lot of those short or long intervals is what I'll structure them as in my training or what you can maybe consider like a tempo run. And for me, those generally are between like eight to 12 minutes if I'm going to be doing, um, if I'm going to be uh, doing them in a structured interval session and they're going to be more like a two to one work to rest ratio. So for every two minutes, 
that I'm at that threshold intensity, I'm going to take about half that time in between to recover before I do the other one. So if that happens to be something like three by eight minutes, it would be eight minutes on four minutes off, eight minutes on four minutes off, eight minutes on. And I'm always going to kind of sandwich that between a warm up and a cool down. Uh, I often will also do what I like to call kind of closing the gap between rest and the intensity you're targeting. So the higher that intensity is, the more like types of things that'll do like some strides between the warm up and the workout itself or some dynamic moves, moves like leg swings or butt kicks or high knees, uh, that sort of stuff, just to kind of make sure that I'm inching my way closer to the intensity that I'm going to target versus kind of going abruptly, even from an easy run into a higher intensity, or in this case, more of a moderate intensity, uh, speed work session. And those workouts went quite well as went well as went quite well too. They, uh, I tended to do, um, a little less structure with this one though. So as I was getting more confident, I was also getting a little bit more, uh, I wouldn't say too cautious. Well, actually, yeah, I was probably being a little more cautious just because I was starting to see some momentum. I didn't want to have another setback and I wanted to make sure that things kept going in the right direction, even if that meant I wasn't going to race again this year. So I ended up doing about six structured sessions of that, where it was kind of like I described that two to one work rest ratio um, between about eight to 12 minutes or so. And in the, in the long interval session and sometimes up to maybe 20 minutes in like a tempo style session. Uh, but I also did like 12, what I would call like mini unstructured versions of this, where I would go out for like a 10 to 12 mile run or essentially something between like 60 to 90 minutes. And just on days I felt good, spend about two or three miles near the end of that run, just kind of working down towards that intensity and just doing that for a couple miles or three miles or so at the most. And, and that seemed to be a really good way to go about it because, um, for one, it allowed me to sort of just lean into when my body was ready for it. And I felt best for it. So there's some days where I just felt like, yeah, I'm gonna have to really like force myself to do this. So I'm just not going to, I'll stay at aerobic threshold or below. And the other days I felt like I was just kind of holding myself back, staying at aerobic threshold. And those days I was like, okay, well, maybe at the end of this run, I'll pick it up a bit and hit some of those threshold intensities for a bit at the end of the run. So I ended up doing about 12 of those kind of mini unstructured end of run type threshold sessions. And, and really that's when I started to get confident enough where I started kind of looking around as, okay, well, I wonder what races I could potentially do at the end of the year. You know, what distances do I even want to consider? At one point I considered maybe doing a hundred K. Eventually what ended up happening though is I hit my peak mileage week of the training block where uh, I hit 145 miles and within that 145 miles, there was only eight runs. So I really only did one, two a day. The other ones were solos. And I had, uh, I think it was um, four 20 mile runs or right around 20 mile runs, a 30 mile run. And then, uh, you know, a 10 and 10, during the AM PM double there. And then a recovery run on Sunday where I went about 12 miles. So it was super high quality. I hit over a, just over 120 miles that week at or faster than goal hundred mile, uh, PR. So, or my goal hundred mile pace or my hundred mile PR is kind of, I'll do that. So, you know, a lot of times I'll look at you know, in ideal settings with the fastest I've run hundred miles is right around a 648 miles. So if I can do, you know, hundred plus miles in a week at, or a little bit faster than that. And that's a good sign to me that I'm kind of getting into a, to a point where I can start considering 
that I'm ready enough to do a hundred mile where it's worth probably looking to put some on a schedule and taking a swing and seeing kind of where my fitness is at. And if I can kind of compound a couple weeks like that, where I'm hitting a hundred or more miles at that, at that target, that's a, a pretty good sign for me. So that week was kind of the one where it said, okay, hundred mile fitness is far enough along. It's worth putting a race on the schedule at the end of the year to see where your fitness is at. And then hopefully build off of that heading into 2023 for what personally, I hope to be a little bit more of a normal racing year for me. Um, minus the injury, it was just been a goofy kind of few years with the pandemic and everything where normally I will like a racing season to be something where I'm doing like six to eight ultra marathons with maybe two or at most three that I'm really looking to kind of push it to the, to the limit or wring myself dry, so to speak. And that's when I feel like I'm really kind of in a good groove when I can do that sustainably. So the last few years just hasn't really been good options for that between the injury and just the pandemic with lack of, of races itself. So it feels like it's been quite a while since I've been able to actually have that, that structure, that framework in place. So one of my targets for 2023 is to be able to do that. Um, but being able to kind of test this training block and do a race at the end of the year and confirm that my body is at a point where that's a good strategy to do is, is going to be important for me. So that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of excited to do, do the Brazil spend hundred mile here on Saturday. Um, some other data points along the way, uh, because just to add to sort of the theme of the describing this training, the next thing I usually do after I kind of get through that phase where I'm targeting threshold intensity is one of my primary focuses is I will start moving into doing more work at the specific intensity that I'm going to try to target on race day. So for hundred miles, um, this is why that 145 mile week with about 120 miles at, or slightly faster than goal hundred mile intensity were important for me. Cause I'm going to want to spend a good four to six weeks kind of developing that and moving a lot of my training load away from anything that's even moderate to high intensity and towards kind of what ends up being kind of close to my aerobic threshold or still in that easy category of, of pacing, which is almost a, a prerequisite for something as long as a hundred miles, like almost regardless of how good you are at running or how fast you are, you're at, a, at the distance of a hundred miles or something that you're going to be out there for as long as it's going to take, even on a very controlled setting, you're just not going to want to be exceeding aerobic threshold for any significant amount of time during those without it kind of costing you at the back end of the race. And and having you slow down in my opinion. So at the end of it all, uh, I had seven weeks where I hit a hundred miles plus, and I did a total of 18 long runs that were 20 miles or further. My longest long run was actually 38 miles, which happened to be a, uh, uh just me pacing Nicole at Havelina hundred. I did the last two loops with her there. So that ended up being my longest long run, but I also had a, a 30 mile solo run in training there too, that, I did on that long or that bigger week of 145 miles. So with most of those long runs kind of being in the back end of the plan, in fact, I waited eight weeks after I had started running to do any long runs. And then once I started them, they were very, very, very few and far between until I got to that, that bigger week where I essentially did uh, five long runs in one week. If you look at it by that definition of uh, being, you know, 20 miles or so for me, which if you want to put like a time to that, I usually start counting it as a long run when it's two hours and 15 minutes in duration. So uh, that's where I'm kind of getting those numbers from is based off of that. Um, all in all, you know, it's been, I would say I had some higher volume training weeks for certain, uh, but 
comparatively, historically, it was a little bit more of a conservative volume approach to the buildup here. If you look at just kind of where my mileage falls over the course of my ultra running, ultra marathon running career, I typically average about 100 miles per week over the course of a year. And that counts off seasons, downtimes after races, uh, lower weeks like deload weeks and things like that. So I tend to be a very high mileage runner. That's just how I responded well to, to training in the past. And it's worked quite well for me for the most part. Um, obviously minus this last year where I was dealing with more injuries than I probably have had in my entire ultra running career, uh, in general. So, um, I'm open to that being something where I need to reassess that, that if that's a reality for me going forward or not, but I think this training plan, uh, or this training block has been a little bit reassuring that, you know, with the foundation developed through this one and, uh, going into the next year, I'll be able to kind of get back to that being a little bit closer to the norm and, uh, carry on with that. But yeah, going forward, you know, my goals at Brazos will be, uh, somewhat weather dependent. The course is flat and fast. It's basically like hard packed dirt. It's considered a trail or what I would kind of call off-road. I mean, you get these courses like tunnel Hill, where it's a rails to trails course or Brazos where it's in like a state park and it's just hard packed, very flat. I think there's only like 600 feet of climbing or something like that on this. So it's like, it's, it's a wide, hard packed dirt path. And, uh, you know, technically we call that a trail. I really wish the sport would sort of try to come up with a framework where we differentiate between different categories a little better. Like track is obviously a track, uh, road is obviously a road. And then you can get into some nuance there with like how much elevation you have on it and things like that. Cause you have road races like comrades where there's actually a fair bit of climbing and descending, despite it being concrete the whole way, uh, versus really flat, fast ones. Uh, and then you have like where I think it's a little more, a little more very, or obviously a lot more varied is the trails. So you have something we consider a trail technically like tunnel Hill or Brazos spend hundred mile. Uh, and then you have something like UTMB or uh, hard rock, which is obviously going to be way more like technical, steep, rugged. And what I think a lot of people think of as a true mountain trail, when you get into the, the details here, uh, Personally, I think when you get to like trails, I personally would define something like Javelina as like the entry to trail because there is some technicality, there's enough climbing and descending, and there's another kind of like rugged element to it there too, where it gets hot or another one, maybe like Rocky Raccoon or something like that, where it's pretty flat. Uh, most people consider it a trail and there's a, there's a lot more technicality on that flat. The, I think it's five five flat loops at, or they may have switched to 425 now, but, um, it's, it's, it's not much climbing at all, but a lot of roots and rocks out on that course. So there is that kind of like impeding your progress type hurdle to get over, which I like to see personally. I mean, no one has to actually take that and put any credence to it. That's just where I personally fall with this. And then I wish they would call races like tunnel Hill and Braz. So it's just off-road just have a category of off-road that is a little more like all-encompassing to things that aren't on track or concrete. And maybe even that would become like the default for like a flat, uh, non-paved type trail or non-paved type course setting or something like that. But, um, but yeah, I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here a little bit, but, uh, any for 2023, the hope is to kind of get through this race with a target of if things go well, I think um, I'll have a shot at maybe going under Pat Ragan's course record there. Pat ran a 12:21, I believe, there a few years ago, and uh, I mean it's a solid time there. But weather will be 
kind of a factor there. It can be, you know, a little bit warm and humid. It's about 45 minutes uh, west of Houston. So there's definitely that potential being December makes it a lot less likely for that to be a big hurdle to get over. But uh, when we're talking about the world of just as much controlled running as you can get, it's definitely something to consider. And then the big one that I'll usually vary this this course or event from year to year is rain. So on a dry year, that hard packed dirt is just rock solid fast. Uh, if it's raining a bunch the week leading in or the day of, it turns into a bit of a mud puddle. So I will have to wait until essentially day before maybe, or even morning of, depending on what does overnight to really determine how fast or what kind of time target to hit there. Uh, I'll be basing my efforts off of intensity um, once I get out there. So really, if it's raining and really a mud puddle versus dry, slightly cooler than normal and really fast, I'll be kind of doing the same uh, the same kind of adjustment there within a little bit of range, because if I'm going to be out there for an hour or say two hours longer, obviously I have to adjust effort a bit to accommodate for that extra time out there, but it'll be fairly consistent in a, in a, in a, in a tight enough range where I kind of know about what that'll produce regardless of what weather will look like there for the most part. Then it just comes to like, you know, what's the goal finishing time. So if it's decent weather, I think I have the fitness to, to take a good look at what, uh, what it would take to kind of go under Pat's time there. Um, you know, the next kind of like target would maybe be like, I ran 1208 at Tunnel Hill. I think um, these are different courses, so it's not a clean comparison by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think like, you know, that time is probably on the table for me if I pace well. From a fitness standpoint, after this buildup, I wouldn't say I'm in as good of 100 mile shape as I was in 2019 when I ran 1119 for 100 miles. Uh, so I won't probably be as aggressive as to go out at the intensity that I was able to sustain for that race. Uh, but I don't think I'm too far off. I think I'm pretty close to the fitness that I was leading into tunnel Hill last year, tunnel Hill, uh, from a finishing time standpoint went pretty terribly for me, actually. So I think my mistake, or I don't think, I know my mistake at Tunnel Hill last year was I sort of overestimated what my uh, goal time should be on that course. Uh, I'm convinced Tunnel Hill is closer to an 11 and a half hour course if things go perfect um, compared to my 12 weight that I ran there in 2018. So when I went there last year, I went there with that in mind that I think I can get like well under 12 hours, if not down close to 11 and a half on a course like that, if things go perfect. Uh but that wasn't the case for me that day. And I ended up hemorrhaging so much time on the last quarter of that race. The way that course is structured is there's two out and backs and you do each of them twice. And that second out and back is where you go up this small climb. They call it the tunnel hill and you go through this tunnel on it and then you come back down it. So it's like about a 23 and a half mile out and back that you do, you do, uh, twice during the day. And the second time I did it, I think I went like an hour slower than the first time. So that's like, I mean, that's by all definitions, what I would consider a blow up. So I have to be mindful of that. If my fitness is similar to that and I go out with a similar intensity that I can probably expect a similar outcome at the end. Uh, so I'll be pacing a little bit more conservatively in the early stages of Brazos to try to accommodate that. And if things present themselves uh, as being, you know, better than I fitness wise than I anticipate, then I can always adjust. And hundred miles is a long enough way where if you go conservative for say the first 50 miles and you feel great, there's a lot of ground you can make up by running really strong in that back half of a hundred miler. And 
Um, this is a different topic for a different day. And if you are interested, I, I had Nick Curry on the podcast a while back and we talked about pacing for hundred milers because he's a big advocate of a, an even if not negative split approach. And, and he believes, and I tend to agree with him to a large degree that, um, this is where we could see a lot of growth in the sport in terms of uh, people improving their performances, or if we look at the pointy end of the field, uh, improve course records without actually any additional fitness. It's just better pacing in the early stages of these races. So uh, those are my thoughts about it. Those are my kind of goals, uh, more or less. But I'm excited either way to kind of put my fitness to a test and uh, kind of build from there for 2023. Um, I'll be doing a podcast kind of recapping it and then maybe highlighting some of my 2023 goals, what I kind of have on the calendar, hope to put on the calendar for that after that, uh, as well as a few guest interviews kind of coming up at the end of the year. But thank you very much for uh, tuning into this episode. Wish me the best at Brazos this weekend. And I'm looking forward to, uh, hopping back on the podcast in a little bit. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a Strength Athlete's Guide to Endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.